Congress. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is a rising star in the Democratic Party. All right, I am so happy to be here to drink. You ready? Who's gone from campaigning on fixing potholes. We are moving dirt and fixing the damn roads. To tackling gun control after a deadly shooting at Michigan State University. The time for only thoughts and prayers is over. Her first term was dominated by COVID lockdowns. I am listening to our best medical minds. And a foiled plot to kidnap her. Now, after a sweeping re-election, Whitmer has a new agenda. Let's get it done. Facing heated opposition. We are Michiganders and nothing's gonna get in our way. As questions persist about a possible presidential run. We have two things in common. Do I get a hint? I find cooking really hard. I find it really stressful. Do you feel your life is in danger? And the love of my mother is what brought me here. What was the worst investment? Oh, there's a long list of really bad ones. Governor Whitmer, welcome. We're here on the campus of the University of Michigan, and thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. So let's start with your nickname. Back in the spring of 2020, uh, when you had imposed your COVID lockdown, you took a lot of heat, including from President Trump, and a Detroit rapper wrote a song about you. Here's a clip. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. <laughs> that nickname, Big Gretch, has stuck. What do you think of it? I think it's hilarious. And let me tell you why. So I'm named after both of my grandmothers, Gretchen Esther Whitmer. And Grandma Gretchen always said, don't ever let anyone shorten your name. It's Gretchen. And so I've always had this aversion to anyone calling me Gretch. And I don't know any women who love big in front of their name anyway. And so this combination just absolutely cracks up my family and friends who've known me forever because they're like, I can't believe you're letting people call you this. I love it. I appreciate it. GMAT Cash wrote that song at a time where I was taking so much heat. And it was a show of support and affection and so I love it I when people call me a big Gretch, I always get a big smile on my face because I just I'm, I'm grateful that in a really hard time um, a community gave me some encouragement when I needed it and so that's what it means to me now I mean what I think it's really saying is no BS approach big Gretch, don't mess with with her and it's been part of your political persona for a long time in fact here is what I think is the, the most significant or best known part of your platform ever since you began running for governor and then winning and being elected governor in 2018. As governor, I want to focus on the things that will actually make a difference in people's lives right now, like fixing the damn roads. Know that it's this administration fixing the damn roads. Let's keep working to fix the damn roads. Throughout my second term, we will continue finding ways to keep fixing the damn roads. Why do you think that line, fix the damn road, struck such a nerve with voters? You know, I think when you're driving down the street and you see a pothole, it's a vivid reminder of government that's not getting the job done. And it is, when I traveled across Michigan, I went to all 83 counties in the most rural parts of the Upper Peninsula. 
I would hear from people the same as when I'm in Detroit, I just want you to fix the damn roads. But there was a story that came up during all those travels and all those miles. I was at the Detroit Children's Hospital and I was talking to a mom whose son was in the hospital. And, you know, I'm, I, I want to ask her, you know, what can I do that would make your life better if I'm elected governor? And she said, I just want you to fix the damn roads. And I, I'm thinking, this woman's got a child in the hospital. And so I said, why? You know, tell, tell me, say something a little bit more. Let me understand. Well, she was driving from Flint to Detroit every day to see her son. And she had three other boys who were at home. And she hit a pothole, and it sidelined her for a whole day. It took a lot of money out of rent and child care. And so it was that story, I think, that for me crystallized. The roads are a lot more than just the roads. It's about whether or not you can put food on the table and take care of your family and get to see your son who's in the hospital. And so I think as a working woman, I don't have time for BS. I just want to get things done, and I call, call balls the way I see them. But slogans are easier than governing, and something that would seem so straightforward and easy You've had a problem fixing the damn roads. You've had obstacles. Why is something that straightforward so hard to accomplish? Well, I've got to tell you, I had a very challenging legislature with which to work in my first term. Um, they promised to work with me on the roads. They rejected my solution and never came back to the table with one of their own. They didn't want to actually put money into rebuilding our infrastructure. It is long overdue, and it's not uh, unique to Michigan. Perhaps the biggest issue you face right now is guns, especially after that man roamed the campus at Michigan State University, killed three people, wounded five. Here's what you said immediately after the rampage. We shouldn't have to live like this. We shouldn't have to subconsciously scan for exits whenever we enter a building or a room. The time for only thoughts and prayers is over. We are in a unique position to take action and save lives. And that's exactly what we are going to do in the weeks ahead. Here is the package that legislators are currently considering. Secure storage of firearms and ammunition, universal background checks, and a red flag law. But, Governor, it's not clear that any of those measures would have stopped that man from getting those guns and killing those people. So, Chris, you know, in this country, the biggest, you know, cause of death for kids in this country and only in this country is guns. We have a gun violence problem, and it's not just this instance on Michigan State's campus or at Oxford High School a year and a half ago. This is, we are losing lives every single day to gun violence. We have a duty to pursue measures that will mitigate that. Are we going to get rid of all the guns in America? No. But can we take some common sense actions to protect people? The man at Michigan, who wandered Michigan State's campus and terrorized the community and killed three people, um, there were calls to police. There were concerns about him. Perhaps an extreme risk protection order, red flag law, might have made a difference and empowered the police to remove that weapon. But why not go for something tougher? Regulation of automatic weapons or large capacity magazines uh, repeal the open carry law, which is legal here in Michigan right now. You have two daughters who are in college. This should be personal for you. It is personal for me, and um, it played out on the campus where I spent a lot of my life um, in a community that I love dearly. 
you know, I do think that there are probably additional things that we can and should be considering, but we've got to get started and secure storage and extreme risk protection orders and background checks is an important, an important part of starting to make our communities safer. But will you consider, will you in fact propose regulating assault weapons and large capacity magazines or stopping open carry laws? I think, you know, we've had a historic election in the state. First time in 40 years Democrats control all the branches of government. It's only happened four times in 130 years in this state. I think it's important for us to deliver on the things we ran on and then explore what is the next step. Let's pick up on that because you did win a sweeping victory for re-election in November, beating a MAGA opponent by more than 10 points. For the first time in 40 years, Democrats have control, narrow control, but control of both houses of the Michigan legislature, what are you going to do with all that power? <laughs> well, you know, we're not even 60 days in, and I've already signed a billion dollars of tax relief for working families and retirees, um, historic investment in affordable housing. So the legislature is, um, has passed civil rights protections for the LGBTQ community. We've been working on this for decades. It's getting done, and we're only 60 days into the term. So. We recognize, you know, it is a slim majority, um, but it is important to live our values and to continue to do the work. And we'll continue to make a seat at the table for, for every person that wants to solve problems, whether you're a Democrat or not. You made an interesting pledge in your State of the State speech in January. Let's take a look. Our message is simple. We will fight for your freedom. And you know what? Let's go on offense. I'll go to any state that restricts people's freedoms and win business and hardworking people from them. I'm looking at you, Ohio and Indiana. <laughs> so what does that mean, Governor? Well, it means if you are a person who values individual liberties, wants to make your own decisions about your body and your family, Michigan's a great place for you to find a future. We got a booming economy. We are landing record investments in manufacturing. We've got some of the best educational institutions in the world, and 20% of the world's fresh water. This is the place to be, and I think that that's a powerful message, and I'm trying to lure young people to Michigan. I'm trying to keep my own young people in my household here, too. And, and what specifically are you saying about Indiana and Ohio? And, and, you know, you're not talking about fresh water. You're talking about rights and freedom. Well, you know, it, I remember it was striking when Indiana decided to eviscerate women's ability to make their own decisions and have access to reproductive health care. And I remember seeing Eli Lilly making some sort of a statement that they weren't going to continue to um, grow their investment in Indiana. And it struck me as maybe there's an opportunity for us here. Companies are looking for talent. Young people expect civil rights protections. They expect equitable opportunity. They expect to be able to make their own decisions about their bodies. So maybe this is an opportunity for us to tell the story of what a life could look like in Michigan for, for this young talent that maybe doesn't look at their home states now as places that are welcoming or comfortable for them. And are you just talking about the young people in those states or are you also talking about the businesses that are based in those states? All of the above. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, 
browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly, Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. You talk about abortion. It was on the ballot here in Michigan in November, uh, and you won. The the pro-choice side won and has put abortion rights into the state constitution. Ten years ago, when you were a state senator, you shared a very personal story on this subject. Over 20 years ago, I was a victim of rape. And thank God it didn't result in a pregnancy. Because I can't imagine going through what I went through and then having to consider what to do about an unwanted pregnancy from an attacker. You know how tough I can be. The thought and the memory of that still haunts me. What adds to that is after that very heartfelt and I know personally difficult speech for you, you lost on abortion rights in the state legislature then. Yeah. It was hard. Um, I had never shared that story publicly. And, um, and why would you decide to do it? Because the legislature was passing legislation without even having hearings and listening to women or medical providers. And I thought I had a duty to put a face on the debate. Um, I consulted two people that I worked with, a man and a woman. The man said, yeah, I think you should do it. The woman said, don't bother doing it. It won't change anything, and you're just putting yourself out there. And I listened to both of them, and I mulled it over, and I ripped up my prepared remarks, and I just spoke off the cuff. Um, And, you know, it was depressing. I went home. I called my dad to tell him because I didn't want him to see it in the news. I'd never shared this with him. But by the time— You never shared this with your father? Mm -mm. No. I mean, this— it was it was spontaneous, and so, but I woke up the next morning as, as as depressed as I was. By the time I got into my office at the Capitol, we had been inundated by women and supporters of women who called and said, "Thank you for giving voice." This has happened to me too. We had calls and emails. I mean, it was really overwhelming, and it made me feel better for doing it because I gave space and legitimacy to an issue that too many women in this country, too many girls in this country are exposed to and have to navigate. Not everyone finds their voice. It took me decade, two decades to find mine. But I thought when I, when I did find it and I could use it and I maybe could make an impact, it was my duty to try. But what did it mean to you? You've shared this very personal story that you say you hadn't shared with your own father beforehand and then you still lose in the state legislature. Well, it sucks. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, I had a Republican colleague of mine come up to me and say, I'm so sorry you went through that. I'm so grateful that you spoke up. That happened to my wife, too. And I, I wish I could have cast the vote that you did. And I, 
I was just so he, he was sympathizing with you personally and voting against you on the substance. Yes, and said he wished he could have voted right. with me. And, and it just kind of took me aback of how, you know, we don't see one another's humanity and we don't give each other the grace to do what we think the right thing to do is sometimes. And that's terrible. And that's why I think this fight is so important. So why did it take 10 more years to win the fight? And what does it say that... In fact, the state of Michigan did vote to put abortion rights in the Constitution last November. You know, we had been saying in Michigan uh, 60 to 70 percent of the people support abortion rights. We've been saying that for years. I don't know that we've done any research, but when the draft opinion came out, I had already filed a lawsuit in court to um, ask the Michigan Supreme Court to interpret our state constitution to encompass the right to privacy and um, protect abortion rights in Michigan. But it was the Supreme Court that made this front and center and galvanized the, the voters and the people of Michigan. And as I did reproductive rights roundtable around the state, it was in one of the conversations where there was a Republican woman sitting at the table and she said, I didn't vote for you. I've never voted for a Democrat but I am out knocking doors for you, and I'm going to make sure you get elected and we pass this ballot initiative. I'm furious they're trying to roll back rights for my daughters. And that's when I realized we're going to win this thing, and we're going to, we're going to do it in a, a fashion that makes a statement, and we did. We talked about Big Gretch at the top. Uh, during the pandemic, you imposed some of the toughest COVID restrictions in the country, including at one point banning any public gathering outside of a single household. Then President Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan, and he also targeted you. Take a look. Michigan, all she does is she has no idea what's going on. And all she does is say, oh, it's the federal government's fault. And we've taken such great care of Michigan. Don't call the woman in Michigan. Well, it doesn't make any difference what happens. The governor of Washington? No, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't call. This was at a time in the spring of 2020 when armed protesters, protesters armed with rifles and automatic weapons, descended on the state capitol. Between that and being targeted by the president of the United States, how tough a time was that for you? Oh, man, it was awful. I mean, the, the worst part was it wasn't about insults and people protesting me. It was that people were dying of this disease that we didn't have a lot of help from the federal government on. We didn't have a lot of knowledge about it. We had, we had refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals in metropolitan Detroit to hold the deceased. Um, I was begging for masks for doctors and nurses. And so um, the hardest part of that time was the loss of life and the incredible impact we were feeling at the same time New York, New Orleans, and Chicago. We were the epicenter of, at the beginning of COVID. And I think that was the hardest part. It, the insults are, you know, that's what he does. I, you know, I, I didn't lose sleep over that. What I did lose sleep over, though, was whether or not I was going to be able to get all the things that I needed to help our doctors and nurses and first responders and keep people safe. Then, in October, law enforcement broke up a plan to kidnap you and put you on trial. And you have said since then, this wasn't a kidnapping plot. This was an assassination plot. 
Well, I mean, let's look at how different, different attempts get covered, right? So Justice Kavanaugh had someone show up on his lawn, turn himself in, one person, and it's been covered as an assassination attempt. Rightly so. There were a dozen people who trained for months, staked out my house, had plans to execute me, and it's covered as a kidnapping plot. One is like this, and the other is like this, and the way that they're covered are completely opposite. It's, it's stunning, and, and I just point that, that out. Why do you think it got covered differently? Some would suggest it's my gender. I don't know, but I can just say that these plotters had no intention of keeping me. They weren't going to call someone for ransom. They were going to execute me, kind of like you see, you know, happen in um, terrorist, you know, situations, and that was the plan. And and that's why I, I really, I pointed out, I don't focus on it a lot, but I pointed out when asked because I do think it's important for people to, to think about that. Your husband, who was a dentist, retired eight years before he intended to because of all the threats and the fact he didn't have security. How much did this shake your family up, being under this kind of threat? Well, um, it was hard. My whole family's made sacrifices. Um, my, you know, my girls, I remember, you know, we were all home and there were people with long guns on the front lawn um, right outside the gate, and they came out and they said, what's going on? And you could hear it, the, the vitriol and the ugliness. The threats started spilling over to my husband's office, and his staff was worried. He was worried that his patients might be in danger, and um, he decided to, you know, look into selling his practice, and he did, and it's been okay, but, you know, it's a big sacrifice that, that all people in office, families make. And even for someone known as Big Gretch, this must have shaken you. I mean, obviously, the personal threat to your safety, but the idea that if there are crazy people out there, your, your husband, your children could also be in danger. I think about it everywhere I go, Chris. You know, um, it, the former president made me a target and threw a lot of gas on the fire, and it has continued to burn. And I think about it everywhere I go. Are the people around me, are they in danger? Do I have to worry about the state police who keep me safe? Do I have to worry when I'm in public that people near me might be exposed? So yeah, it, it, it's taken a toll, but it's not gonna scare me. It's not going to you know, change who I am and the decision, how I operate and how I treat people and um, the decisions that I have to make. I've got a job to do and I'm gonna do it. You, you say you think about it all the time. You didn't, it's not, I thought about it all the time. You still think about it all the time. I do. You know, um, it, there are times when I am in public and I, you know, I've got the greatest state police detail in the world. Um, but there are big crowds at times and I, it does cross my mind. I don't, I, I'm not obsessed with it, but it does cross my mind. There's no justification for any violence under any circumstances, but I do want to, explore a little bit with you the effectiveness of your lockdowns. Michigan was one of the last states to lift a cap on public gatherings in June of 2021. By comparison, Florida lifted its cap in September of 2020. But the death rate for Florida from June of 20 to June of 21 
was 39.6 per 100,000. The death rate for Michigan was 97.3 per 100,000, so more than double. Why did Florida do so much better without the cap than Michigan did with the cap? Well, so let me just say a few things. I had a lot of conversation with my colleagues um, here in the Midwest, and I'll never forget one of them saying, you know, Gretchen, why do you take so much heat? You're doing a lot of the same things that we all are. And, and that was true. And why take heat? Well, you know, maybe others have theories on that. I do think that um, we were operating with very little information and a federal government that was not particularly um, effective in managing the pandemic and certainly was not great partners to the states. We also, uh, and not effective is an understatement, they were putting out misinformation, endangering people. I think, too, that the way that different states calculated their numbers varies across the board. I've seen a lot of reports about some of the numbers that you've just cited from Florida and perhaps the, the lack of confidence in the, actu you know, in the um, accuracy of them. I don't know. I'm not going to weigh in on their policies. I'm going to tell you, I listen to the best experts in the world, the people here at the University of Michigan. I made hard decisions because lives were on the line. And the biggest fear in the back of my mind was that this pandemic would look like the 1918 pandemic, which took a lot of young children's lives. And that's why we were aggressive. Um, that's why I think studies here have shown that we've saved thousands of lives. And at the end of the day, the most important thing that government does is keep people safe. Hindsight's 2020, but looking back and looking at some of these numbers, do you think you overreacted? If I could go back in a time machine with all the knowledge we've accumulated, would I do some things differently? Absolutely. And any governor who doesn't say that exact same answer um, doesn't know enough to know what they do and didn't know during the time. I'm just curious if there was one thing in particular that you could do differently, again, knowing then what you know now, what would it be? Michigan would have been manufacturing the world's masks and swabs and would have helped keep people safe. But um, I mean in terms of lockdown. In terms of, you know, there were moments where we, you know, had to make some decisions that in retrospects don't make a lot of sense, right? Um, if you went into the hardware store, you could go into the hardware store, but we, we didn't want people, you know, all congregating around the gardening supplies. People said, oh, she's outlawed seeds. It was February in Michigan. No one was planting anyway. But um, that being said, you know, some of those policies I look back and think, you know, that what maybe was, was, a little, was a little more than we needed to do. I know that you are all in on Joe Biden for 2024, but if something happened, would a Democratic candidate who had won sweeping re-election as a Midwestern governor with an impressive record of bipartisan accomplishments be an attractive candidate for president? <laughs> sure, that sounds like a great description. Uh, that said, I am not running for president in 2024. I mean, if something happened, you might. No, I've made a commitment. I am, have signed up for a second term as governor, and I'm going to work every single day to be the best governor I can and put this state in the best position it can be in when I, when I leave and hand it over to whomever comes after me. So I checked. I did my research, and it turns out that in 2028, 
you will be 56 years old, which may, under the current climate, be too young to run for president. <laughs> but you're not ruling out ever considering running for president, are you? You know, when I left the legislature, I never thought I'd run for anything again. And here I am, the sitting governor of Michigan in my second term. I'll say this, you know, my mother died of a glioblastoma at the age of 59. And that is in the back of my head. I'm not a fatalist. I'm not, you know, thinking I, my, my days are numbered in the, in the near future. But that weighs on, uh, on my mind on occasion. Um, I feel really lucky to be exactly where I am right now. This is, this is where I want to be. And we'll see what happens down in the future. But I'm, I'm not making any secret plans in any, you know, smoky rooms. Well, I wish you a long and happy life and an interesting political future. <laughs> it will never be dull. That's the one guarantee. Thank you. Governor, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. One of the governor's bipartisan accomplishments she's especially proud of is the Michigan Achievement Scholarship, a new program to help students pay for college. The goal, that 60% of Michigan adults will have either a skills certificate or a college degree by 2030. Thank you for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want right here on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.